And when you find your place in Ruth 4, if you wouldn't mind standing to your feet, uh, that indicates to us that you're ready, and also it's our way of honoring the reading of God's word. Thank you. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took men of the elder he took ten men of the elders in the, of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar, Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. God, how it instructs us and teaches us and tells us of your great love for us. It is through your word that the gospel came to us. The good news of Jesus Christ, the word that became flesh, that dwelt among us, that lived out the law perfectly, and died on the cross in our place and rose again on the third day. And now, your son Jesus is seated at the right hand of you. God, we, uh, we're gathered to hear from you. We pray, God, that you'd speak to us. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would just prod our hearts and encourage us and um, rebuke us, correct us if necessary minister to us, conform us more into the image of Jesus. Thank you for your word, Father. Thank you that we can be here to sit under your word, teach us now, and be glorified through this. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, good morning again. Um, I apologize for my throat. It's starting to go on me right now, so if I'm clearing my throat, just bear with me. I'll try to 
cover this hand or this little headset, but I don't know if that's going to work. Um, today, I've titled the sermon "The Act of Redemption." The Act of Redemption, and the reason why I titled that is quite simple. It's because this scene in the story is the act of Boaz redeeming Ruth and Naomi. Um, if you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, we've been going through the book of Ruth, and it's been a huge blessing. Pastor Dan has been teaching for the past four weeks, and um, we've been following this narrative and seeing how God is working in the life of both Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. But I want to give a quick recap of the story. If you haven't been with us these past couple weeks, that way you can kind of get caught up to speed, but also it kind of helps set the scene for our climax of the story, which we find here in chapter four. So the story of Ruth, it begins with a man named Elimelech. And Elimelech um, made the decision to move his entire family out of Bethlehem into the country of Moab because there was currently a famine in the land of Bethlehem. Now at some point, Moab, um, Elimelech tragically dies. He dies in the land of Moab. He leaves behind his wife, Naomi, and his two sons, Malon and Kilion, who eventually marry Moabite women. But then, tragically, they themselves die, leaving behind their widow mother and their wives. So now Naomi and her two daughters are left in the country of Moab, and the scene is pretty desperate. It's a pretty desperate situation. Some time passes, and Naomi eventually gets word that the famine in Bethlehem is over. And so she decides to go back to her home because there was nothing left for her here in Moab. Before she leaves, she gathers her daughters up, has a little family talk, and tells them to go back to their families in Moab because their future was not looking good if they would go with her to Bethlehem. Now we read that one daughter, Orpah, she goes home. She listens to Naomi. She is sad to leave, but she chooses to leave. But the other, Ruth, refuses to leave Naomi. We read she actually clings to Naomi and tells her, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Na- excuse me, Ruth literally commits her life to serving and supporting Naomi. Now it's a really beautiful display, I've read this, a beautiful display of God's hesed, his faithfulness and his loving kindness. And Ruth shows this to Naomi and Naomi allows her to come with her. And so Ruth and Naomi go back to Bethlehem together. Chapter two, once in Bethlehem, Ruth goes out to the fields to pick up scraps of grain to provide for both herself and her mother-in-law, Naomi. And we read that she just so happens to glean in a field or pick up grain in a field owned by one of Naomi's relatives, a man named Boaz. Now, Boaz is a godly man. He's a kind man. He's a generous man. And he seems to be somewhat of a stud of a man. And it just now happens that Boaz was visiting the field on that day. Ruth was, was there and she catches his eye. Now he inquires and finds out she's the daughter of Naomi and he already has heard of Ruth's story because of he's heard of what's happened to Naomi in the land of Moab. He had heard of her kindness towards Naomi, choosing to stay with her and care for her. He is moved to show her special kindness. So he hooks her up with lunch, protection in his fields, and a bunch of extra grain. He just blesses her in the name of God. And through Boaz, again, we see the kindness of God towards Ruth and Naomi. Ruth goes home after meeting Boaz and dumps a huge amount of grain on the table. And Naomi, 
is taken back. She literally says, blessed be the man who took notice of you. Ruth tells her that this, was the, this man was named Boaz and Naomi lights up. She explains to Ruth and Bo- that Boaz is a relative of theirs and that he is a redeemer. So she tells Ruth, do not stop gleaning in that man's field. And Ruth continues to glean in Boaz's field and, and he continues to hook her up with all the food that her and Naomi need. In chapter three, as time passes and the end of the harvest season was fast approaching, Naomi starts to scheme up a plan to make sure that they'll have provisions and be set for life. Because no harvest means no food, so she comes up with a pretty scandalous plan. She tells Ruth to wash up, wear some perfume, and to show up at Boaz's harvesting party. But don't let him see you, hang back, let him drink a little wine, And once the party ends and Boaz goes to sleep, then go to him, uncover his feet, and lie down with him, and he will tell you what to do then. Sounds super scandalous, right? We said this last week, and it was scandalous, but you know what? There was a purpose in it. Now Ruth goes and does all that Naomi tells her. Boaz wakes up in the middle of the night and sees Ruth lying next to him, and he's startled, rightfully so. Ruth puts herself out there and asks Boaz to make her his wife and redeem her, And by God's grace, Boaz's response is that he's blessed by this gesture and he wants to redeem her. But there's one problem. The problem is, is there is a closer redeemer, there's someone who's closer in line to redeem Ruth and Naomi. And as the custom goes, he has the right to redeem Ruth before Boaz does. Boaz tells Ruth not to fear. He will go speak to the other redeemer and sort this all out in her favor, which means either this other redeemer will redeem Ruth and Naomi and she'll be set for life at that point, or if he denies that, then Boaz himself will redeem her, which is what we're all rooting for in the story, which brings us to our text this morning. Ruth chapter four, verse one. And as I'm going through this text and we're t- learning and studying it, I'm gonna be rereading these passages of, text, of, of scripture to help refer back to what we're talking about. Ruth chapter four, verse one and two. Let me go ahead and read this again for you. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. Now chapter four starts off by setting this scene of this part of the story today. Boaz has gone up to the gate in hopes to run into this other redeemer and discuss the situation concerning Ruth and Naomi. Now there are a few reasons why Boaz goes to the city gate and I wanna walk you through that. The first reason is because the city gate would be the best place to find this redeemer. Boaz had no way of getting a hold of this guy. It wasn't like Boaz could shoot him a text and say, hey, can we meet at this time, at this place to discuss this matter? That's not how it worked in the ancient world. So it would be by chance that Boaz would see this other redeemer at the gate, but this is the best place to look for him and Boaz knows this. Now the reason for that is because the city gate oftentimes was the common place or the common entrance that people would enter and exit the town, the city, or the community. And oftentimes a place where men would gather to socialize, to hear public discourse, to hear teaching. So the city gate operated as kind of a main hub for most people in the community to talk and socialize and do business. So Boaz goes to the city gates and hopes to find this redeemer. The second reason why Boaz comes to the city gate is because he, is, he has a civil matter to settle. 
Official business and, and transactions oftentimes took place at the city gate. The city gate somewhat operated like a city hall, a courthouse, and a public square all in one. And in our story, it seems to be clear that Boaz's intention is not only to find this other redeemer and discuss the matter at hand, but it is also to call, atten- to, call to attention a civil court case and legally settle the matter once and for all. Boaz is just trying to get things done because he's a man of his word. So he's at the gate, and behold, we read in verse one, the redeemer of Boaz comes up, he shows up. Now, I wanna pause for a moment here in our story because I wanna point out that this is the second time that we read of a seemingly chance meeting in the book of Ruth. The author did this back in Luke chapter two, verses three and four, when he tells us of how Ruth and Boaz met. Let me read that for you right now. Ruth chapter two, verses three through four. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you, verse five. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Now, we don't know the odds of Ruth being able to pick the field of a kinsman redeemer to glean from. We don't know the odds that Boaz would go to the field and see Ruth and ask about her, and we don't know the chances of Boaz going to the city gate after the threshing floor, the incident with Ruth, and finding this other redeemer. But here's what we do know. We do know that God doesn't work off of odds. We know that God doesn't allow anything up to chance. On the contrary, we know that God in his infinite wisdom sovereignly works all things together for his purpose. We read that in Isaiah 46, 9, where we read, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. God declares the end from the beginning meaning he knows and decrees the outcome of all and nothing will change or deviate his good purposes. God doesn't deal with chance. There is no randomness in redemptive history. Even that which we perceive to be intended for evil, we read is worked out to accomplish God's glorious ends. We read about that in Genesis 50. On the account of Joseph, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, speaking to his brothers who had really harmed him. But God meant it for good to bring to it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now I bring this up because the author of Ruth understands this. And he has been showing his audience that the perceived coincidental and even the accidental are actually intentional events orchestrated by God to accomplish his will. So far in our story in the book of Ruth, we have seen God work through famine, through death, through desertion, through companionship, through poverty, through desperation, through attraction, through loneliness, through barrenness, through scheming, and it has all been working together towards accomplishing God's great and wise purposes. Now the word we use to describe this reality in scripture is providence. And providence is the reality that God in his infinite wisdom is in control. Now you won't find this word in the Bible, but you will find the reality of this word throughout every single page in the scriptures. And I think 
Question 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism provides a pretty good definition. I want to read that for you now. God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade and rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Nothing is by chance. All things pass through the almighty hand of God for his purposes and to his glory. Now I wanted to pause and bring this up because I believe as Christians, grasping and believing in God's providential care over our lives should be one of the most comforting realities in the life of a believer. To know that there's nothing left up to chance, that God has purpose and control, and he does so with infinite wisdom and love. Because what it means is that we can trust God in every season of life. In both our failures and our successes, we can trust God in his plan. In the joyful seasons and in the seasons of sorrow, we can trust God. In the years of feast, in the years of famine, we can trust him. We can trust God with a Trump administration and we can trust God with a Biden administration. We can trust God with COVID. We can look at all the things in our life, all the things that have happened to us and be comforted knowing the perspective that God truly works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. We can trust God in all of those things because nothing can deviate or thwart his great plan. It amazes me how when I look back over my life, all the many times I've been able to identify God's wise workings through all of the circumstances and situations and seasons of life that I've gone through. And maybe you can relate to that, where you can look back in life and see how God has beautifully orchestrated so many different things to sanctify you and to bring you to certain places in life, maybe even bring you here today. I know for me, there's just He's worked through so many good opportunities, so many good relationships, circumstances, so many different things. But I also have noticed that God has worked through so many different failures, heartaches, pain, sorrow. God works these all, all these things to accomplish his great purpose. My faith personally has been bolstered when I look back and trace his providential, providential hand all throughout my life all throughout the leading of my family to this place, even today in Santa Barbara. It reminds me to trust in God. It builds my faith for the glory of God. Now, there are plenty of things that will happen to us in this life that we will not come to understanding of as far as why God providentially allowed it into our lives. But here's the comfort, is that someday we will know and even though we may not understand what good can come out of certain experiences in our life and certain trials in our life, let us not be naive to think that just because we can't see why God would allow this or what good can come out of this, that there isn't going to be good that comes out of us because who are we trusting in? We're trusting in a heavenly father who deeply loves us and has a beautiful plan of redemption for all creation. The death of Jesus on the cross is the ultimate example of how this is. None of Jesus' followers at the time could fathom what good could come out of his death. Yet, 
they were justified by his blood. Yet we who put, their faith, who put our faith in Jesus are justified by his death, by his blood, his sacrifice. We can trust that God knows what he's doing. We can rest in the reality of God's providential care today. Now back to our story. So behold, this redeemer appears. Boaz calls him over and has him sit down. He then calls 10 men, elders of the city, to come and sit down as well and bear testimony of these, this business transaction that's about to go down. And Boaz goes on to present the facts. We read this in, in uh, verses three and four. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, then redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And the other redeemer says, I will redeem it. Now, Boaz presents most of the information here. He leaves out a pretty crucial piece of information which he holds in reserve. But I love how Bo just gets straight to the point. He grabs this guy, he sits him down, he has the elders there and he just, he goes in for it. He, he, tells, he tells this other neighbor that Naomi has come back from Moab, is selling her land. You're next in line to receive that. Do you want it or not? If you don't want it, I will take it. He means business. And then we read, this other redeemer says, I will redeem it. And this is the moment that the original audience and maybe even some of us today would be just super bummed. We'd be like, no, Ruth can't end up with this guy. We don't even know who this guy is. I mean, who is he? The author doesn't really care to tell us anything about this guy other than the fact that he is a closer redeemer to Boaz. We have no idea what kind of man he was, what type of reputation he had in the family or in the community. We aren't even given his name in the text. He is referred to as friend by Boaz in verse one, but many commentators agree that although the Hebrew word used here can be translated as friend, this word is most likely a literary device intentionally used by the author to communicate that this other redeemer's name does not matter and has been left out of the story intentionally. So we don't even know this guy and we don't want Ruth to end up with him. But then Boaz jumps in, doesn't skip a beat, and drops the deal breaker information in verse five. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now in my mind's eye, I'm like trying to imagine the scene here where you have, you're in the city gate, you have 10 elders witnessing, you have people passing by, stopping in to hear what kind of business is being done there. And I have this Michael Jackson thriller popcorn meme in my head where they're just all sitting just watching to see what is actually going to happen like oh my gosh this is getting good and so Boaz just steps right in he explains that if he wants the land he also has to take responsibility for Naomi as well as Ruth the Moabite who he will now be obligated to try to produce a son with and if he does have a son that son will then be the heir of this property that he is about to purchase for himself this is a pretty big deal. This is a big change in the deal. Now, this whole buying land that comes with a wife and a mother-in-law and having the responsibility to help preserve a dead relative's family name by producing a son through this new wife, and although 
he is your son, he's not gonna be known as your son or with your name because you're helping perpetuate the name of the dead. Now this may sound extremely weird and very strange to us, and it does sound strange and weird, but to the original audience, this wasn't unusual. This information definitely took this man off guard, but the stipulation was not a foreign concept to him. What Boaz is referring to is known as the Leveret Law, which was given to Israel by God in order to care for those who become widows without someone to carry on the family name and maintain the family property. This was one of the ways that God would show his hesed, his loving kindness and faithfulness towards his people in times of hardship. We read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses five through 10. Let me go ahead and read that for you now. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the, perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. That's strange, right? (laughs) That's very strange. But the purpose of this law was again, God showing his loving kindness and his faithfulness in protecting those who are put in very vulnerable situations. Now, we just read that the Leverite law applies directly to those who are the brother of the deceased. Now, there is nowhere in scripture outside of the book of Ruth that seems to imply that this law can be applied to other family members. This could be why this other redeemer was taken off guard when Boaz brings this up to him in front of these elders. We really don't know why this is applying to him, but considering that the elders gathered to witness this transaction don't speak up and tell Boaz he's taking this law out of context, it shows that this may have been an acceptable practice in ancient Israel. Whatever the case, this news is a deal breaker to the closer redeemer, and upon hearing this, we read that he bows out. He says in verse six, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, it's, it's pretty apparent in our story that this other redeemer is backing out of this deal because of Ruth. It wasn't until Boaz brought up Ruth and, his, and this family obligation to perpetuate Malon's family name that he was not able to redeem this. But why is this a deal breaker? He tells us in verse six. He can't do it because it will impair his own inheritance. Now, we can't be 100% sure what he means by impairing his own inheritance, but it is likely that he is speaking about his estate and his wealth that will be passed on to his family. You see, if he were to redeem Elimelech's land, he would have to purchase it from Naomi. This would require a large amount of his own money, but would be worth it because he was acquiring more land to pass on to his heirs. He would be accumulating and gaining more assets and more wealth. But with Ruth in the picture, 
this seemingly no-risk, high-profit investment with zero strings attached is now viewed as a high-risk, minimal profit with plenty of strings attached. Because now what it requires is that he not only has to feed and house Naomi, this other redeemer would have to feed and house Ruth. He would have to provide shelter and food for his children if he bears children with uh, Ruth. And then if he has a son, he would legally have to pass on this big investment to him. In other words, this would cost him. There's that potential of costing him greatly. And ultimately, this redeemer chooses to forfeit his covenant obligation because he believes the personal cost is too great. Now, this is the second time that a character in this story was faced with a costly decision and they chose the path of self-preservation. The first time we see this in Ruth chapter one, where Ruth and Orpah, her sister-in-law, are given the option by Naomi to leave her and go back to their family in hopes to get married and have a shot at a better future. Naomi is convinced that life for these young women would be much better if they chose to go back to their father's house, which would mean that Naomi would be left alone without community. She had to survive for herself and fend for herself and gather food for herself, and she would be without the possibility of having grandchildren. But we know that Ruth, she ends up choosing to cling to Naomi and make the costly decision to follow Naomi wherever she goes, to make Naomi's God her God, to live out her life alongside Naomi, shouldering her burden. Orpah, on the other hand, makes a decision to be released from Naomi. She forfeits her obligation to take care of her widowed mother-in-law in hopes for a better future. She chooses to do what's best for her. The second time we read about this is here in our text. This other redeemer is faced with a costly decision to show great hased, God's loving kindness and love to Ruth and Naomi, yet he chooses to forfeit his family obligation out of fear that he will impair his own inheritance. And outside of verse eight, this will be the last time we hear of this nameless redeemer. Now I can't help but equate this with the cost of discipleship. There are so many similarities here with the cost of discipleship, the cost of following after Jesus. Jesus spoke of the cost of discipleship this way. He said in Luke chapter nine, verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. Both Ruth and Boaz in this story seemingly count the cost. They deny conventional wisdom and they choose to faithfully extend God's kindness and love to those who are in need. And in contrast, just as the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 chooses to not follow after Jesus because he was not willing to suffer material loss, so too Orpah and this closer redeemer choose to not extend the loving kindness, the said of God, because they were not willing to suffer personal loss. There is a cost to kingdom living. The cost involves giving up your life to find life in Christ. And I just thought as I was studying this and praying through this that perhaps there is someone here this morning who has chosen self-preservation 
over costly discipleship. And now you're being confronted with a decision, once again, the choice to either live for self or to live for Christ. If you're wrestling with this decision to follow after Jesus, let me tell you that God is not calling you to do anything that he hasn't already done for you. It was God who first chose to give up his only son, Jesus Christ, to pay the ultimate price, death on the cross, in order to redeem those who might put their faith in him. You know, the irony of choosing self-preservation over costly discipleship is that losing your life for Christ is gaining more life than you ever would have trying to save your life yourself. Ruth and Boaz are prime examples of how true that really is as this story plays out. So this other redeemer forfeits his right to redeem Elimelech's land and family. And just as expected, Boaz steps right up, start picking back up in verse seven. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Verse eight. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead might not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. In verse seven, the author gives us a little commentary on this ancient custom in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. And the reason for that is probably because this way of business transaction was no longer a custom even to the original audience, but the explanation definitely serves its purpose and it helps us understand it today. The author then walks us through the process and we read that the selling party gives the buying party one of his sandals as a type of deal sealing. Now, commentators are not sure why there is a sandal involved. It could be in reference to the divine promise given in Joshua chapter one, verse three, where God had told his people that every place the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you. So giving one sandal was kind of a symbolic way of showing that the land that God had given you, you are now passing on to that redeemer. We don't really know, but personally, it seems pretty inconvenient to have to lose a sandal and then walk back home from the city gate with only one sandal. But this was the custom. Now regardless, the bigger picture here, the bigger point here being made is that Boaz has now been given the right to redeem. And he immediately settles the matter by declaring in front of the elders, the witnesses, that he is redeeming all that belong to Elimelech and his sons. He has redeemed Ruth and will fulfill his Leverite law in hopes to perpetuate the name of the dead. And we read this in Ruth chapter four, that all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This was the blessing and the testimony given. Now, this is an amazing blessing given here. And it's given by the witnesses and the elders of the city. 
And there's a lot to be said about the blessing as far as the names and the stories attached to each one of these people's names. Um, They're just so meaningful and they speak volumes of God's providence and God's grace and mercy. And we're gonna hear more about these names next Sunday as we conclude the book of Ruth. But in a nutshell, this blessing was a prayer to God asking for further kindness and faithfulness towards Boaz and his family. And Ruth and Naomi, for them, this was the official beginning of life with their Redeemer. Now in closing, I'll wrap this up. In closing, I wonder to remind the church today that every little story in the Bible, like the story of Ruth, like the account of them being redeemed, is meant to point us to the great story, the greater story of the Bible, which is the story of redemption. Ruth, who was utterly poor and downcast, barren and widowed, deserving of nothing, is met by Boaz with such great love and kindness and mercy. So great that he was willing to pay for her redemption, which is costly. Now, as we read this story, and as we meditate on this story, this is meant to remind us of a bigger story. This is meant to point us to the grand story of redemption that we see throughout all of scripture. The story is meant to draw our eyes towards our heavenly father whose love is so great that he gave his only son Jesus to pay the ultimate price dying on the cross for our sins in order to redeem you, in order to redeem me, in order to redeem and restore anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Church, be encouraged this morning by God's providential care. Know and remember and rest in that. Remember the cost of discipleship and praise God for his loving kindness in redeeming you and me unto himself. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your great loving kindness and your mercy for your goodness and your wisdom, for your providential care over all that is created. God, I'm sure all of us can look back on our lives and see your hand and how you've moved. Give us grace to have that, that view again, to know that you have just worked so many things out for your glory and our good, but also, Father, there are things in our past that we know we just can't see the good in yet. Father, we trust you with those. Help us to trust you more in those challenging and difficult and unexplainable circumstances. Help us to trust God in your word when you tell us that you have a plan and a purpose for those who love you and are called according to your purpose and that you work all things together for good and we trust that you will, God. Thank you for teaching us. God, I pray that we would really even consider ourselves, whether we're a Christian or not, the cost of discipleship. The cost of choosing to show God's love to people opposed to just preserving ourselves, being concerned with uh, just not having to pay any price. I also pray, God, if there's anyone here this morning 
who has not committed their life to Jesus, who have not repented of their sin and declared Jesus as Lord and placed their faith in him, we ask God that you would continue to work on their hearts because life with you is so fulfilling. It's so beautiful and wonderful. Thank you for giving us that life in Christ. So Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.